Hello, I'm Helen Daly. Welcome to Build It, Thou Come. I'll be speaking with some of Australia's most brilliant innovators and entrepreneurs on how they turned their light bulb idea into concrete reality. We had this strong sense that we couldn't fail. There was no way this couldn't work. Yeah, you know, we really respect our shareholders and, and to me you survive if you add value. So, you know, I could look at it and say I can buy it for that and I can sell it for that. And so if you've got that ability to buy and sell and trade, some people have got it, some people will never get it. Some are household names and some you may never have heard of yet. My name is Michael Cameron. I'm the co-founder and CEO of Rome to Rio. And we really aim to help make travel easier by helping travellers explore all their options for getting from A to B uh, with the business of Rome to Rio. On today's episode, I'm chatting to Michael Cameron. He and his business partner didn't set out to be internet disruptors, but that's exactly what happened when he wanted to make it easier to travel from Croatia to Canada and to get all the information in one spot. Their Rome to Rio travel website, giving easy information on all modes of transport to get from anywhere in the world to anywhere else, literally took shape in his mum's suburban Melbourne living room less than 10 years ago. The pair just sold the website for $40 million, and I'll show you how they did it. Enjoy my chat with Michael Cameron. Michael Cameron, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's a real pleasure. I wanted to be able to talk about our business and our journey to date. Well, now, for those few travellers left in the whole world who may not have used it, what is Rome to Rio? Tell us. So Rome to Rio is a website that helps you discover all your options for getting from A to B. So it might be by train, by bus, by ferry, uh, rideshare, Uber, uh, maybe taking a, a camel if required. So you can put in an origin, maybe it's your home address, maybe you want to figure out how to get to the island of Capri off the coast of Italy. And Rome Trio will show you all your different options for getting there from door to door across all the different modes of transport. It's a great name. Yeah, it's a great name. It's uh, really catchy. People remember it. It really encapsulates the idea of it being about global travel. So that's something we really want to emphasise with Rome to Rio. Although we're Australian business, we've always had very global ambitions from the, the start of it. Well, I must say, um, I've used it and I think it's fabulous and I had no idea it was an Australian business when I used it. <laughs> yeah, we get that quite a bit, uh, especially when we go out and do recruiting. We get job applicants that until they see the job ad, they don't realise that we're based in Melbourne. They always think we're a Silicon Valley startup, which is super flattering. But no, we're very proudly started here in Melbourne and I think the whole uh, passion for travel that a lot of Australians have uh, really resonates in the culture that we've built in the company and the mission and why people are really passionate about Rome to Rio. So let's go back. You're obviously a brilliant, geeky kind of guy. hope that's not offensive to you. Um, <laughs> no, geeky, yeah, that's fair. <laughs> a search engine expert. What does that actually mean and how did you develop those skills? Yeah, I got um, interested in genomic search to begin with. On the human genome? On the human genome. Uh, so bioinformatics is the field where you look at DNA and uh, protein sequences. Uh, and that was at Monash University where I did um, my undergrad and my honours. That was a fantastic experience. So sorry, was that in science or in computer science? 
in computer science, but it was also with the Department of Biochemistry. So it was a collaboration between both those departments. That was that was fascinating. And then went on to RMIT University to do my PhD in the same field. But then after that, my PhD supervisor, Hugh Williams, moved to Seattle uh, to work for Microsoft and several of his students, including myself, followed him over there to work on the Bing search engine. Uh, and that's where I learned a lot about search in the context of a consumer web product, which was a whole new experience and really fascinating. So what were you like at school? Were you always brilliant at school? Did you love school? Were you a daydreamer? <laughs> I think I was definitely one of the nerdy kids. <laughs> um, very fascinated by computers. We were very fortunate as a family. We weren't, we weren't super well off, but we were well off enough that we could afford a computer and my dad was a statistician. He was fascinated by computers and had used them with punch cards in his, his work, which was also at Monash University as a car accident researcher. And so we got a computer at home. It was in 1984. We had a Tandy TRS computer and it was very basic, but we were one of the few families in the neighborhood that had one. And I think that really brought out a love of computers in my brother and myself and my sister. So what was your family like? You talked about your dad being a statistician and obviously, you know, education was important. I mean, were you pushed? Did your folks have very big expectations of you academically? I don't think explicitly they had great expectations of us academically, but there was certainly always a passion for academia in the family. My mum was a librarian and, yeah, my dad was uh, a researcher. So they were into reading for a start. Into reading, into into science, into I guess sort of like a, a curiosity. And I do remember as a child asking lots of questions. And I do remember uh, my mum in particular was always very good at giving me lots of answers to all of my, my questions. And then I, I think my dad and I are the two that went on and got PhDs, but um, the other members of the family also went on and got, got degrees. And that certainly has helped us with our careers. I think there's also become quite a sort of entrepreneurial streak in the family. I, I'm not sure where that came from, but my brother went and did the Y Combinator program in uh, the Valley. Uh, my sister runs a business called Ink and Spindle out of Abbotsford Convent. So that has become some sort of entrepreneurial streak in the family, even though that wasn't really my parents' uh, profession. Yeah. So that didn't come from mum and dad? I don't know. It didn't seem to. I suppose maybe they instilled in us a, a, an appetite for risk. And I think that's probably something that's important when you are considering becoming an entrepreneur, because it really is very much a, a, a risky profession. How did they do that if they sort of had steady jobs, they weren't in business per se? How did they instill risk? I think maybe it was a, a, an acceptance of financial risk. I think we grew up with uh, leading a, a reasonably modest lifestyle. I remember the thing we really sort of, when the family did have money, what we spent it on was travel. And that was, you know, at the time, travel was a real luxury to be able to go to Cairns and Port Douglas, I remember as a child. Uh, we went over to Rottnest Island. I do remember that as well. We did one trip overseas to the US and that was a pretty extravagant thing to do um, tied to my dad's um, business. But um, I think it was the fact that we were, you know, we didn't have extravagant lifestyles. And so as we, I guess, you know, ourselves went on and had our own careers and were able to make a bit of money and have that sort of security buffer uh, in the bank account that allowed us to be okay to take a bit of a risk because we weren't 
expecting and, and getting dependent on a sort of lavish lifestyle and, and be able to have that financial cushion that is really important if you want to consider a risky venture. So you did your PhD, you did it in computer science in the field of information retrieval? Yeah, that's right. So it was bioinformatics as well, but it was information retrieval uh, for, for, ge- for the genome, for the human genome and, and um, protein sequences and DNA sequences which was a really fascinating area where, you know, it was really about helping biologists search databases of DNA and protein sequences to guide their research. And we were doing some really interesting work on improving the tools that they use, um, whether it's researchers in academia or, or might be drug companies to do those, um, to do that informatics research. So again, that sort of help giving them the tool, the search engine tool, that's what you were really concentrating on. Yeah, absolutely. And um, although that was really fascinating, I think one of the challenges when you work in a field like that is that DNA sequences and protein sequences just look like letters. Uh, So they're not that exciting to work with. Yeah. And so it wasn't until I sort of went over to Microsoft and worked at Bing that we were working on web searches uh, and, and search results on the internet and searching the internet. And that was when things got really interesting. I found it fascinating the kind of queries that people would put into a search engine and then how they'd interact with that search engine to answer all sorts of questions that come up in life. Oh, extraordinary. I mean, it it sounds like you were pretty young when you went to, uh, what, Redmond in Washington to work for Microsoft. Yeah, so it would have been my late 20s. Wow. uh, Early 30s. I'd just finished the PhD, so was pretty young and naive, bright and bushy-tailed, keen to make, uh, make an impression, keen to work hard uh, and learned a lot from that experience. I think working for a US technology company and then working for what was sort of a bit of a startup inside Microsoft as well, this Bing search engine was something that had only just been launched in reaction to the fact that Google had IPO'd and Microsoft had realised there's a whole lot of money in this search engine game. So it was great to uh, to work in this very quickly growing team on this new product and learn a lot about how the US tech culture operates and how, how efficient it can be. Oh, I imagine it was just, you know, perhaps 10 steps up a notch from what you might have been exposed to in Australia. I, I mean, I'm imagining that it was a blast to go and work for Microsoft. I mean, maybe what you're saying is that they got to search engine territory a little bit too late, mm. that Google was already in there. But, you know, here you are working at one of the most innovative, albeit aggressive companies in the world. What was that like? Yeah, they certainly had a reputation that I think after all of the Netscape saga about being quite an aggressive business. And under those years, it was under Steve Barmer. I think that image is changing quite a lot. And it's really interesting to see now that it's some of the consumer businesses like Facebook uh, and Google and so forth, uh, especially around how they're using user data that have become a little more controversial. And Microsoft has really become much more about business products mm. and has really changed its image quite a lot. And I think uh, Sachin Adela, the CEO now, has done a really great job in uh, in transforming that. But I think it was, you know, it was an American tech company to work for. So there was always the issues of a, a work-life balance about the hours that people would put in. But on the same side, people were passionate about what they were working on. They knew that they were having massive impact um, when you're working on improving something that's used by hundreds of millions of people each day, 
the idea of only making a 1% or 2% improvement on that, you know that you're still impacting millions of people's lives. And that's pretty exciting. Yeah, that's amazing. So how did you come up with the idea of Rome to Rio? So it was very much born from our own travel experiences. Uh, Bernie Sheeran, my co-founder and I, both independently had been frustrated by the existing search engines for travel and that they were very much about how to get from one airport to another by plane. Right, so really only the air travel leg of it. Exactly, and only to an airport. No one's actually travelling to an airport, they're travelling to a destination. So Bernie wanted to be able to search how to get to Machu Picchu. You know, what were the legs to get there? I wanted to be able to find places in Europe that were off the beaten path, but also just be able to consider all of the options to get from A to B. So you were friends, but you weren't travelling together at this point. That's right. We were friends. Uh, We had met at a pub uh, in Seattle, both working for Microsoft as Australians who were expats over there, but quite independently were having the same challenge with travel and saw the same issue with existing websites. So, sorry, just take us back. Had you come back to Australia by the time this idea kind of you got together and thought, we're going to do something about this to make this door-to-door, all modes of transport search platform, we're going to do it? Yeah, the idea actually germinated whilst we were living in the US. And then actually at the end of our time, so my wife and I uh, had spent three years in Seattle, we decided we would like to start a family. And so we packed up everything we owned and we put it into a storage container in Seattle. And uh, we traveled around Europe and Asia for a year. And it was during that time that it really solidified in my mind that there was a need for this product because we were traveling around and I was spending time in hotels rooms trying to figure out how to get from A to B. Yeah. Wasting time. Wasting time, wasting valuable time. It's not what you want to be doing when you're traveling. And so by the end of that year, it became clear in our minds two things. First of all, that I wanted to come back, I wanted to work on this particular problem and try and solve it. Uh, And second of all, that we wanted to return to Melbourne to live. And so that's really when Rome to Rio was born. On the way back to Melbourne, I, you know, shared my feelings about the problem with Bernie. Uh, He was very much aligned with that. And then he took the plunge to also move back to Australia uh, he's originally from Perth, but he took the plunge to move to a completely new city uh, and move to Melbourne. And, and, and then together we started work on the first version of the site back at the end of 2010. I've read that you started it in your folks' living room. <laughs> that's right. You sure that's not made up? <laughs> no, that's very true. We were actually were living with my folks at the time, my wife and I. So it was a bit of a, you know, a bit of a punt because we were working on this project. Uh, neither of us were drawing any income from it. Uh, neither of Bernie, my co-founder, or myself. My wife had become pregnant, and we were living with my parents to wow. sort of save money. So baby on the way, and this project that's not paying you any dough. Yeah, yeah. So two babies on the way in one sense, and so that was why we sort of started building it out of my parents' living room, and they were super accommodating and have been really supportive of the journey uh, throughout the whole time. So back in 2010, was it a a big idea in both your minds? Was it a big vision or was it just a little idea, little vision, and it just grew from that? I think we always had, I'm not sure if it was a big vision or a small vision, but it was a simple, very clear vision to us. It was about helping people get from A to B and 
we had this product in mind and we never really wavered from that. I think there's a lot of entrepreneurs that pivot as they go along, they get consumer feedback, they're looking for that product market fit. We didn't really go through that journey. We had this very clear idea of the problem we wanted to solve. We were both software engineers, so we both had the toolkit in some sense to at least solve it from an engineering point of view. And we just wanted to get to work solving it. I don't think we appreciated how long the journey would be. I don't think we appreciated just how hard it would be to then build a team of people in Melbourne to work on the problem together and then eventually find a, a, a home for the business. So I suppose we were a bit naive from that point of view. I think at the time we were very passionate about just solving this problem from a technical point of view and then somehow building a business around it. Okay. So what, I mean, to encapsulate, I I guess what you're saying is that you always thought that real world travel in this digital age where, you know, most travellers, many travellers more often search options themselves. They're not necessarily going to travel agents and that should encompass these all modes of transport. Yeah. And it is really interesting, this shift from the offline travel agent to the world we're now living in, where there's amazing resources available through Google and TripAdvisor. Uh, there's so much online now and the users are, uh, the travelers are able to get so much from these resources. And a Rome Rio is a piece in that puzzle now of tools that are available. We often compared ourselves to the Lonely Planet guidebook and the section, the getting there in a way bit mm. that you'd have at the end of, of each destination. And it'd say, okay, well, you can get to Marrakesh from Fez by train and it takes four hours and it costs you about this much. And really, in some ways, we saw Rome to Rio as a replacement for that piece of the Lonely Planet guidebook, but in a much more user-friendly, searchable, very responsive um, sort of product. Yeah. So, I mean, you say you had all the, you know, you had all the computer knowledge, you were the experts in that. How hard was it, though, to gather the data of train or bus timetables in Timbuktu or yeah. Croatia or <laughs> and make sure they were correct and keep them up to date constantly uh, and to do it door to door? How hard was that? Yeah, that's been... Um I wouldn't say hard, but a a big part of the business has been building that out and a lot of fun to do that. So what we have today is a team of five or six people here in Melbourne who manage a team of about 40 people around the world who are contractors and they go and research that information for us. And it might be PDF timetables on a Greyhound Canada website. It might be taking a photograph of a timetable for a ferry in Thailand. What, down at the ferry terminal? You've got subcontractors taking photos. So you're actually scouring the world in an old-fashioned, you know, leather on the pavement kind of way. Absolutely. Whatever it takes has always been our philosophy. However we have to do it, we'll get the information so that we have that really complete picture of the world's transport. And then we have a bunch of tools that we've built out for those people to use to put that information in our systems. But in the very early days, it was actually a tool that we'd built and I would use it myself. And then my mum was actually our first freelancer for putting these routes into the system. And she would be doing the online research. I guess this came to our sort of librarian background to find the information and put it into the system. So I think one of the really interesting things of the journey is you have so many people that help you along the way, whether it's your friends, whether it's your family, it's mentors, they've all played such a critical role in the success. And part of the role of an entrepreneur, I think, is 
getting everyone on board on your vision and getting them to help you out to fulfill that that vision. It's just extraordinary. I mean, that part of it sort of sounds almost too easy. Um, no, I don't know if it's easy, but it's certainly <laughs> it's certainly really rewarding. I think when you have so many people who are so invested in that vision uh, and following your lead, that is really satisfying. Yeah, but I imagine your data sourcing of this information that you're then providing in a kind of an easy-to-navigate website, the end product, Rome to Rio, that that's key and that has been key over the last nine years. Yeah, and I think what we try to do with the Rome to Rio product is that we have this amazing search algorithm and then we have this collection of data that's really unique. And the user, from their point of view, it's all seamless what happens under the hood. They see a very simple interface where they put in an A, they put in a B, and they get some information. And that's part of the magic, I think, of Rome to Rio. It's super fast, which is something that we work very hard to to improve the speed of it. And then just how user-friendly it is and how simple it is to interact with. But What's, what's brilliant about it is there's a lot of complexity going on under the hood. Yeah. Now, back to the beginning, did you have a business plan? No. How detailed was it? <laughs> did you have lawyers involved? Any accountants? <laughs> no, none of that for the first oh, probably couple of years, I would say. Really? It was very much two guys in a proverbial garage, uh, This time, in this case, my parents' living room, working away on building this technology that we were passionate about um, probably not the smartest way to build a business. It was our way to build a business and I suppose it worked for us. What was your initial funding? I mean, did you have to beg for money from mum and dad? Had you saved any from your work at Microsoft? Did you borrow from banks or family? Did you use credit cards? No, in our case, it was some savings we had from our time at Microsoft and I think that was um, – certainly put us in uh, a, a, a comfortable position to be able to go and take this risk. Like what sort of savings that you actually put into the business? Mm. Yeah, I mean, there wasn't a lot. I mean, one of the great things about building a consumer web business is it's actually pretty light in cap- terms of capital. We maybe spent in the first year and a half of our own money to run the business. Right. I'd say the biggest expense by far was the fact that we were going without salary for that time. So very much an opportunity cost. But in terms of capital we needed to put in, it was really just our own. Yeah. And uh, and it was pretty modest. Then how did funding continue? So in terms of funding continuing, then we started speaking to angel investors. And back at the time, which was around 2012, it was a pretty fledgling startup community here in Australia. Very. (laughs) Very fledgling. Yeah, very small. I think the film, The Social Network had come out and so it was a bit of a sort of a hot, exciting area, but there weren't a lot of people who had completed the journey themselves, who had sold a business and had some money and and smart money that they were willing to reinvest into startups. We were super lucky that one of the few people with those sort of expertise were the founders of Retail Me Not, two gentlemen, Guy and Bevan, uh, who had sold that business and they were our first investors. Just for those who don't understand what angel investors are, uh, I mean, it's it's fairly obvious from the name, but do they come in at the pretty much the very beginning? Yeah, I mean, the name says it all. They fly in with wings on and... <laughs> no, um, <Yeah. laughs> No, and just they, flutter money down on the table. Exactly. Yeah, it's all very it's, – it's a beautiful name, isn't it? It is. It really is. So they're very much those early investors that you, you might not have a very concrete business plan lined up, 
uh, but they're willing to take the punt on you. Uh, often it's the team that they're investing in there before you're ready to take that next leap and get venture capital money. Yeah. So do they say in a year's time or in five years time, I want 50% of the business or or is it just they, you know, I'm investing here, I want some return on my money, but no ownership of the business? Yeah, generally the latter. They don't want you to be disincentivized by ending up owning a, a small amount of the business. So yeah. they understand that there's pretty, I think, well-worn tool books and processes and expectations around that. For each round, they might take, for example, 15% of the business. So after a couple of rounds, you still want the founders to own the majority. Yeah. And their, uh, their role is really to guide the founders. Um, and I think there's a sort of well understood that the, the founders should be the ones leading the charge and that businesses where the founders are, are very much in control and are being guided but not told what to do are businesses that are more likely to succeed. I hope you enjoyed Build It, Thou Come. Let me know via Twitter at Helen underscore Daly. Better still, let your family, friends and colleagues know. Share it around your networks. Stay tuned. In part two of Helen's interview with tech entrepreneur Michael Cameron next week, he reveals how they built a simple idea into a globally renowned website now worth $40 through constant innovation and achieved that in less than 10 years. 